If you have opened before you there that passage from Titus chapter 2 on page 1199, um, we'll certainly be spending a, a good part of our, our time looking at those verses. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for all those ways in which you speak to us. Those moments when you arrest our attention and share yourself with us. Sometimes you do that through the the dramatic things of life, the earthquake, the wind and the fire. But we pray now that you would speak to us in that ever reliable and trustworthy way that you've chosen that you would speak to us through your word. We thank you for your word and all that you've given us uh, through it in the past. And we pray that you would use it to speak to us again this morning. Amen. Nick Hornby has been one of Britain's best-selling authors in the last sort of decade or so. And in the summer of 2002, I read one of his novels. Um, I brought it along with me here this morning, and maybe some of you had the chance to read it as well. How to be good. Uh, I I guess it it was the title of it, uh, as much as anything else, that that caught my imagination. It tells a story of Katie Carr. Listen, she says, I'm not a bad person, I'm a doctor. One of the reasons I wanted to become a doctor was because I thought it would be a good thing to do. We don't have to read too far before we discover that Katie isn't as good as she would like to be. I'm a good person, she continues, a doctor. And I'm lying in a hotel bed with a man I don't really know very well called Stephen. And I've just asked my husband for a divorce. As the plot unfolds, we meet Katie's husband, uh, the angry, cynical, negative David. David's undergone a massive change in his life. He's decided that he wants to be good. And he talks this over with Katie. All I know is that I want to live a better life. I want us to live a better life. And how do we do that? Katie asks. I don't know comes David's almost inevitable answer. How to Be Good was Britain's biggest selling novel in 2002. No book sold more copies in that particular year. It seems to have struck a chord uh, with our population. People everywhere want to know how they can be good. And it's a question that it is foremost in our minds, or at least should be here in Kirkpatrick Memorial, after what we have been thinking about together these last Sunday mornings in in Paul's short letter, Titus. Because time and time again, we've been confronted with Paul's repetitive theme. Titus, teach the people in Crete to be good. Good in their churches, good in their, their workplaces, and good in their public life. If they're good, no one will have a bad word to say against uh, them 
or the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in fact, if they're good, they'll draw people to Jesus. So time and time again, we've heard the call to be good. But I'm guessing that we're a bit like Katie and David in Nick Hornby's novel. We're like countless others. We want to live better lives, but we don't know how. We don't know how to be good. That's why I ask you now to turn with me one last time to to this wonderful short letter. Paul's letter to Titus. We're going to focus on chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. If you were here with us three weeks ago at our communion service, you'll remember that we looked then at the early verses of chapter 2. We learned about God's plan to change us from good for nothings into people who radiate goodness. He saves us. We, we learned in those early verses of chapter 3. Well, verse 11 of chapter 2 deals again with that same majestic salvation theme. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, this paragraph flows immediately out of the previous one. Paul is talking to slaves and he says, Listen, you've got to be good in your workplaces. And he links it then into what he says in verse 11 by the word for. He's making the point that employees can be good in their workplaces because God's grace has appeared to them. In these verses we're going to look at just now, we're going to see two different aspects of the grace of God. Firstly, it has appeared to all men. Paul's talking here about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God come uh, and living among us in human form. He's talking about how God has, has graciously chosen to save us by, by placing our sin on his Son. He's talking about how God now offers forgiveness to those who believe in him. God's grace brings about our salvation. Nothing else brings about our salvation. And until we've experienced God's grace in Jesus Christ, we can't be saved and we can't be good. But look now at the second aspect of God's grace in verse 12. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. That's, I want you to think hard with me for a moment about this. Once God's grace has brought you into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, it continues to work in your life. God's grace is every bit as much at work in your life after that point as it was at that point. It, it now takes up a different role. It teaches us or it trains us. And maybe trains is the better word. Because God's grace, what it teaches us isn't just knowledge for our heads, stuff for our minds. It it trains us into a new active way of living. Paul tells us about this training. He says it trains us to turn away from some things, to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. And you don't need me to tell you that 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 describes pretty well the world that we live in, a place of godlessness, um, 
and worldly passions. A place that tells us, go on, pamper yourself, take time to spoil yourself, look after number one, indulge because you're worth it. Well, thankfully, in his grace, God thinks more of us than to encourage us in raw selfishness. By his grace, God helps us to to turn away from that. On the other hand, God's grace trains us to turn towards a a new way of life here, a a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age. It's exactly the kind of life that, that Paul's been talking about so often throughout this letter. Can we be good? Absolutely. We can be good, Paul says, when we have been saved and as the grace of God continues to work in our life to make us good. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because in a sense, just now, in the middle of a sermon, we've come to the end of our series in the book of Titus. And I want to let this all settle in your minds for a moment. And I want us all to be honest about how we react to the teaching of God's word at this point. This teaching that we ought to be and that we can be good. Can I share my reaction with you? In a hushed tone so that nobody else hears it. It's not working. This call of God's word to create a a definable community of people whose lives are radically different isn't working. At least not in any comprehensive way. We live in a country here where a huge proportion of our population take the name of Jesus. But we live in in a violent and broken and damaged society. In most of our churches today, I think we have reached a point where we think of our faith as something that should change us. But that's all. Not something that that could and that is changing us. I want you to be honest about this this morning. I want you to think of this church or other churches where you have grown up. Did the normal teaching and practice of those churches help you to change? When you think of those communities, did you have a strong sense that the people in those communities were being changed? Did being a part of those communities make you less proud and more humble? Less selfish and more generous? Did being a part of those communities teach you how to love? Did it change you? I would love it at this point if the vast majority of us were able to put one hand on our heart, 
put the other on the air and wave it shouting, yes, 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 that's my experience of church life. But I suspect that that wouldn't be the reaction that the majority of us would get. Friends, although there are glowing exceptions, and I praise God for them, and I long to be one of them, although there are glowing exceptions, followers of Jesus Christ in Ulster today, on the whole, are not being transformed into the likeness of Jesus in the way that God's word calls us to. I can speak only of my own experience. I asked you to think of the communities that you've been a part of. I grew up in wonderful churches, and I'm grateful to God for that. Places where the Bible was taught wonderfully faithfully. But even as a young man, in what I knew were were great congregations, I was always struck that a lot of the guys who had been around for a long, long time didn't seem to be changing. Somehow the, the journey had grown to a halt. Nothing was moving or, or, or changing in any way. Whatever way our church was structured or whatever was being taught, it didn't seem to do the job that the New Testament uh, calls us to. People weren't, at least not in substantial numbers, being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And if that's the case, then I think we have to put our hands in our hearts and say the church was, was failing. And if that's the case here, then we put our hands in our hearts here and say this church is failing. Whatever else we, we might think we're getting right. And I suppose looking back on it, I tried to work out why this, this might be. And certainly in my tradition, there was an underpinning assumption that transformation happens automatically. That once a person is saved, as long as they keep coming along, um, keep hearing teaching, maybe reading their Bible on their own terms, then they're going to change. That's just going to happen. And my sense at this point in my life is that that assumption was wrong. That the assumption that change would just naturally happen, automatically happen, has proved to be a a wrong assumption. It seems to me that we're not only not being changed, but a sermon like this probably sounds quite jarring and surprising because we've come to the point where we're not expecting to be changed. We're, We're like Popeye the sailor man. I don't know if you remember Popeye. Whenever he was frustrated with himself, whenever his his shortcomings somehow came before him, he'd he'd respond always the same way, I am what I am. I am what I am. It's quite tragic, actually, when you think about it. Every time he's confronted uh, with with a a problem in his own life, he, he makes his excuses But he doesn't expect these shortcomings in him to go away. He doesn't expect to to grow or to change or to be transformed. It seems to me that he's saying, don't get your hopes up. Don't expect too much. I am what I am.
and I've seen Popeye in myself. There are lots of times and long periods of my life where I don't expect God's transformation and where I probably don't even want it. And I meet Popeye very often in our congregation when I go out visiting. I meet women and men who are maybe vaguely aware that that God calls us to, to something better and a more dynamic life than the one we're currently living. But in the heart of us, we just say, well, this is just me. These, these failures and this sinfulness, this is who I am. I am what I am. I think we're faced with a choice, actually, folks, at the end of the day. And I think we've already made it in most cases. The choice is we either take God's word seriously at this point or we don't. If you went through the New Testament and highlighted with a highlighter all those areas that talk about transformation, the call to transformation and the possibility of it, you'd have quite a chunk of your New Testament highlighted. How is it then that we who claim to be Bible-believing people aren't expecting transformation in our lives and in our church community? How do we manage that in our own minds? You see, the goal of the Christian life is transformation. That's what this life with God is all about. Life with God is not about people knowing where they're going to go when they die. It's not about giving people a a wee sense of peace and a wee crutch that will get them through bad days in this life. It's not about giving people more and more information about the Bible. All of those things... They're they're good on their own terms, but they're not what the life of of God in us is all about. The goal of our life with God is that we will be recast in the image of God. That we will be made to look like Jesus. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said that the purpose of the church is to make little Christs. How's Kirkpatrick doing? Forget about all the other criteria that we apply. How are we doing? How many little Christs have we created and are we created? Am I becoming that that kind of a person? Just earlier this year, John Stott gave his last major address before retiring from his public speaking ministry. It was at the the Keswick Convention. The 87-year-old asked his congregation a question to introduce his topic. He asked, what is God's purpose for his people? And he he answered his own question. I want to share with you where my heart has come to rest as I approach the end of my pilgrimage on earth. God wants his people to become like Christ. Christ-likeness is the will of God for the people of God. If John Stott's right, and if C.S. Lewis is right, and, and these other folks are right, then you and I, if we're Christian people, ought to be changing. 
The goodness that Paul talks about in this letter to Titus ought to be a growing reality in our lives. We can't sidestep it. We can't finish a series in the book of Titus, close that, and go and find another less demanding part of the Bible. We've seen it now. Look back with me again to those verses that we've looked at just a moment ago. We read there that the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. God's grace saves us and it trains us to live different lives. I suppose what I'm, I'm trying to do this morning is to impress on you this second aspect of God's grace. God's grace isn't limited to forgiveness and justification. God's grace changes people. Being changed is every bit as much of a gift of grace uh, as our initial justification was. In fact, it, it seems to me that any interpretation of grace that sticks only with forgiveness of sins is happy to be an unbiblical uh, definition an unbiblical interpretation of grace because it makes it impossible to understand what the Bible teaches about ongoing Christian life. One of the ways in which we, you could explore this for yourself sometime is, is look up in a Bible concordance the, the occurrences of the word grace in the New Testament. And although this is somewhat artificial, try and split them into two. Those that deal specifically with the the salvation moment, uh, as you would have it in your mind, and those which talk about God's ongoing work in your life. The way we preachers preach, you'd imagine that most of, of the mentions are in the salvation moment. Look it up and you'll find that the vast majority of mentions of God's grace are an ongoing presence of God's grace in our lives. Listen to a couple of examples I, I just picked out. In a second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 8, Paul stresses how God's grace is going to work in the lives of believers in the city. He says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you'll abound in every good work. Interesting. For those of us who've just read the book of Titus together, so God's grace is the thing that's going to enable you to do good works. In chapter 12 and verse 9 of the same letter, he talks, Paul talks about God's work in these terms. He says, The Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Where we are weak, Paul says, God's grace is going to enable us. It's going to make things possible in us that wouldn't otherwise be possible. God's given us, given his grace to each person who is in Christ. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 4, the passage Adrian read for us earlier. To each one of us, grace has been given as God apportioned it. I could go on here, but do you see here the ongoing role of grace in a Christian life? We can't live a life of Christ without the grace of God enabling us at every turn. Now, at just the moment, 
where we think, right, grace is a gift of God. It's a gift in our salvation. It's a gift in our ongoing Christian life. At just the moment where we might imagine that there's nothing for us to do, that this is an entirely passive experience on our part that God gives, and surely that's what grace is. It's a, it's a giving of God. Then Paul starts to talk about grace in terms of what he does to receive it. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, he says that God's grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So Paul seems to have an understanding of God's grace that doesn't rule out his effort. Okay? The Christian life for him is something at which he strives where God gives grace. Both of those things at once. And we see that understanding as well in, in Peter in his second letter, chapter 3, verse 18. He urges Christians to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It seems that there are things that we can do, efforts that we can make, steps that we must take if we are to embrace and receive the grace that God gives to us. This is the area that I would like us to think about in our morning services for the next few, Sunday, uh, next few Sundays. We've heard the call in God's word in Titus to live good lives, and we want to take that call seriously. We want not to let it fall on deaf ears. We want not to regard it as an impossible ideal, but we're going to see if, if we can work out from God's word how this might actually happen. If, if we have a title for the, the second part of this series, I'd call it How God Makes Us Good. We're going to be thinking about God's grace and we're going to be thinking about our role in cooperating with God to receive his grace. <coughs> I thought I could make it for another minute to the end without that, sorry. Let me leave you with something to close. I, I know there's a grave danger. I've confused you entirely, and I don't want that. Imagine for a moment you're, somebody's given you a yacht. That's a nice thing to, to imagine. Somebody's given you a yacht and wants you to sail it for them. There's lots of stuff that you could do and, and would have to do. You'd have to either loose the moorings or lift the anchor. You'd have to raise the sails. You'd have to put your hand on the rudder. But if the wind doesn't blow, you're going nowhere. Without the wind blowing, no matter how hard you try, that boat won't move. Your, your fist clenching, your teeth gritting, your determination won't do the job. It's the wind that does the work. Your job is simply to facilitate the wind and let it do its work. Friends, if there's going to be any meaningful change in my life or in yours, it'll only be as the wind of God's Spirit moves. Our own efforts aren't going to cut it. We know that. 
if we're the kind of people who have tried to be good. So our job isn't to, to try and to force change in our lives. Our job instead is to be aware that God's Spirit is blowing through our lives, that God longs for nothing more than to see us transformed. And our job now is to cooperate with God, to look for those ways in which we can be attentive to His grace, that that we can catch it, that it can fill the sails of our lives, and that we move forward as people changed into the likeness of Jesus. Let's learn as much as we can about that in the weeks, months, and years ahead. Let's make it a priority to learn how God makes us good. Let's pray. Father God, we are on difficult ground here. For for all of us, we sense that the life that we live is not, not quite the life that we would wish we were living. Often, we sense that the life that we live falls short of the life that you have called us to. But Lord, we know that you're a God of infinite love and of grace. We know that no desire is closer to your heart than to make us like Jesus, to make us good. Lord, we pray that you would birth in each one of us this morning a passion to be changed people. If we've been content for years and for decades to tread water, to stand still, to let the the wind of your spirit pass us by, then Lord, challenge us this morning. Create a new hunger and a passion in us. Make it the, the passion and desire of our lives to cooperate with your spirit and to be changed. Lord, we pray this not not for ourselves, but for your glory. We pray that people who come into contact with us would see you in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.